all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 334 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Australian Test Cricket episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that for the longest time, there was a highest score in Australia for test cricket, which apparently is like the highest tier of cricket you can play. And that long-time highest score held by Sir Donald Bradman and Mark Taylor was 334. And with that wonderful little bit of test cricket knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be a residence only employee. Tim! Yo. Or should I say, Jazz Hands Tim? Because, I don't know about <laughs> you, but I wanted to sign up and audition for a musical right after watching this film. Uh, you know, I will say that my family absolutely felt like that. My wife, we were sitting there watching him, had the, we had the family watching these movies, and Jen wouldn't leave me alone until I made sure to be able to show her in the Wikipedia page all of the musicals covered so that she would be able to start a list because now she wants to go and watch every single one of these musicals that was covered in this movie. Oh, really? Good for her. That's fantastic. I wrote a few down that I haven't seen in 20, 25 years. So I I feel her completely. Well, I mean, I don't feel it's... her completely. I understand. <laughs> that would probably be the better thing to say. <laughs> I was a seasoned performer of 17 when I, I first worked with Judy Garland. And all I had to do was take one look at this beautiful girl before the cameras, and I knew that she had it. She had that magic. The stars you're seeing have all returned to MGM, the studio that invented the movie musical. They were a part of an era of entertainment unlike any other the world has ever known. Let me tell you, for a little girl with a wild imagination, this place was heaven. I have never seen They're all here for one reason, to join their talents for the first and only time in one motion picture. They've come together in a kind of labor of love. It will never happen again. Metro Goldwyn Mayer, producers of the most magnificent movie musicals in all of Hollywood's history, proudly presents the greatest musical of them all. With special appearances by Elizabeth Taylor, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, James Stewart, Debbie Reynolds, Mickey Rooney, Bing Crosby, Liza Minnelli, Donald O'Connor, Peter Lawford, Frank Sinatra, with Judy Garland, Jane Powell, Clark Gable, Catherine Grayson, Gene Harlow, Joan Crawford. That's entertainment. It's more than a movie. It's a celebration. That's entertainment. You can wait around and hope, but I'll tell you, you'll never see the likes of this again. 
That's entertainment. Boy, do we need it now. So for those of you who are wondering where we're at, we're actually beginning our series. This is a four-part series. We're going to be covering the That's Entertainment trilogy, along with 1985's kind of red-headed stepchild, if you will, for this kind of series called That's Dancing. This is a really interesting series of movies. So what we have to remember is that, uh, so we have 1974 was That's Entertainment. That's what we're covering this week. Uh, next week we'll do That's Entertainment Part 2 from 1976. Uh, we're going to go in chronological order and jump to That's Dancing for the uh, third week in this series from 1985. And then finally, we will close out the series with That's Entertainment 3 from 1994. And... What's interesting about these movies, so if we're, we're looking at this from 1974, from the viewpoint of 1974, there was no way to regularly or reliably be able to watch movies when they weren't in theaters during this time. Um, you know, certainly to a certain extent, people were beginning to be able to see them on television. Um, very, very loosely are we starting to just kind of start seeing the the seeds the inklings of what would become cable during this time but the vast majority of people simply had to rely on their three major networks their translator stations and what little uhf was available to them at the time and if you wanted to see movies again you had to wait for re-releases and they didn't really have behind-the-scenes featurettes. You, your best bet for that was to turn on, uh, to turn on Tonight Show, and or the Dick Cavett Show, and stuff like that. That these were the ways you would get your little snippets of things that might have happened behind the scenes or what have you. And MGM. Seeing that they have this huge history, they're, you know, 1974, they're 50 years old. Um, and they've got a history of the talkies from 1929 on. And they are like, we, we might have an idea of something. And so Jack Haley Jr. is thinking we should, we should put our catalog to use. And so they, for the first time ever, they reach out, they get a hold of Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly uses his power to, his star power to reach out to other stars like Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby and, uh, and, and the like and get them to share some of their experiences and stuff. And what's really interesting is you can see not just the history, but you can see the finality of the golden age of Hollywood because all of the segments that get introduced by the various actors and actresses who have been called to help with this are all on the studio back lot, which is dilapidated. It is a breath away from being uh, demolished, which in fact it was after the filming was complete for that's entertainment. They tore it all down and turned it in and sold it off for housing development. Yep. That's where I work. The it's, it's kind of sad. Like the, it's all like retirement living facilities, literally right where the back lot, the second lot used to be. What's really crazy is when you watch a scene. So they have one scene towards the end of the film here where, Fred Astaire, 
does his dance down the train platform. He does this really fun little, you know, little 35, 40 second jig down this train platform. And then they cut to the end of the number back to Fred Astaire, who is 74 years old, 74-ish years old, walking down the same trap train train platform. I mean, and it's just, it's worse than a ghost town. And you're like, wow. I mean, it, it truly even then was gone. Um, but, but I've kind of gotten a little off track. I'm sorry. So they get these stars together. They start cutting everything together. And they had no idea how this was going to go. But they go ahead and one more time, they have the red carpet gala. They have the super huge party across the, across the way in, in whatever hotel it was. Um, and it, and it was a huge success, huge success. People were immediately clamoring for it. And, and, uh, uh, Bob Osborne, right? The guy from AMC or Turner, TM, TMC, Turner Movie Richard, Classics. Richard Osborne. Richard Osborne, thank you. When he was talking about this film, he said that this movie is actually credited with the birth of nostalgia. Pop, basically pop culture nostalgia. This is the genesis right here. And when you think about it, it, it really is. And so the film covers some of the greatest musical numbers of the, of their 50 years. And it's a, just a fascinating look. Not only is it a fascinating look at the first 50 years of MGM and the golden age of the Hollywood studio system and all of that, but it's also interesting to look at how they felt about it and to think about what it would have been for us back then. Here we have the internet, we have everything as a breath away for us. And it's, it's just completely fascinating that we, that, that we would not, we have no idea of what it's like to have to wait anymore to find out something. We can, we can immediately know. Oh, hey, Beetlejuice was great. What's happening with the cast right now? Oh, are they going to do a sequel? Oh, they are. They're not. They are. They're not. Or, wow, I love video games. Oh, let's talk about Nintendo all day. Oh, let's talk about Sony PlayStation all day. We, we have that ability at our fingertips now. And even from someone like me and certainly someone like Tim as well, um, who grew up in the era of that transition, it's even when we couldn't do that, we still had better access to that then. And it's just crazy to, to think about this. I, I mean, I don't know, Tim, what do you, I mean, what, what are you thinking about this movie? I mean, I, we haven't even really talked about the movie itself, but even just the concept of it. There's a lot I thought about this movie because I remember watching it years ago on TCM and didn't really think too much of it. I mean, I grew up watching a lot of these musicals. Uh, the movie touches on a few, uh, oh, well, one Mario Lanza film, The Toast to New Orleans, another film that I grew up watching with my grandfather. I was very happy to see it receive a little bit of love here on uh, on That's Entertainment, but what really kind of affected me the most, I work on that lot. And where you first get that 
view of the old, well, it's still there, but the MGM sign that says that's entertainment on top of the building, the big marquee, and then you see the Thalberg building, which was the MGM building, now it's the Columbia Pictures building. I, I was just kind of ecstatic. It's like, oh yeah, I get to see what my work looked like, you know, 40 some odd years ago. I got to see where my building was, where my office window is, and where all these other buildings, you know, all this stuff. But then they started doing that trip down nostalgia lane thing that you were talking about, where Mickey Rooney was talking about the backyard musicals that he and Judy Garland were in. And as they're talking about it, they're showing the town, the neighborhood, the yards, and he's actually walking, current, like present day 1974, Mickey Rooney is actually walking down that street. And the yards are completely unkempt. The houses are dilapidated. The fences are falling apart. And it is just very sad to see all, all of that. And then they go and they're kind of around like the downtown, like New Yorky type area of the lot that used to be there. And it's the same exact thing. And then you see that train platform with Fred Astaire. And for a film history buff such as myself, who has been studying film for as long as I can remember, watching it, analyzing it, deeply, deeply appreciating it, and now working in, well, what used to be the largest, most popular movie studio in the entire world, seeing what used to be there 35, 40 years ago, it, I mean, it's heartbreaking. I mean, you wouldn't believe it then, but now there are buildings all over the place and there are houses all over the place. You can see kind of off into the distance whenever, I believe it's Jimmy Stewart, who's on top of another building. So you get this neat bird's eye view of the studio. Well, if you look off into the distance through all the smog, <laughs> there's a crap ton of smog that day that they were shooting. Uh, but you can see that there aren't a whole lot of buildings or a lot of houses surrounding MGM Studios. That's not like that now. A lot of stuff like that, it was very kind of pseudo-nostalgic for me because, or maybe it's like backwards nostalgia. I, I I don't know. Like, oh, wow, this is what we used to have. I bet Sony Pictures wished they still had that second lot. I mean, Culver City, where MGM was first built and where Sony is now, that is, an, again, that is like an up-and-coming movie area. It's revitalizing itself and... Man, only if they had that back lot, that would be the only other studio, the only other studio in town, other than Universal Studios, that actually has that back lot. So again, it was just some kind of like backwards nostalgia I felt while watching this film. But there was also a lot of joyous nostalgia going back and watching these great routines that I either watched as a kid uh, or that I studied in uh, in film school, but it revived my passion for Busby Berkeley and his musicals. Because even the Busby Berkeley, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland backyard films, they were beautifully shot. What I love so much about Busby Berkeley is he knows how to move a camera. He, in my opinion, he was the filmmaker, the director that separated the movie musical from the stage musical to whereas the camera goes into the action. I believe there were more than just two or three examples of Busby Berkeley's work in That's Entertainment Part 1. 
And yeah, it just, again, it just revived, it rekindled my flame for Busby Berkeley musicals. Just absolutely stunning work. I appreciate this movie. I mean, it makes sense why it was such a big hit back in 1974. I mean, couldn't be happier that both Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly also had such a huge hand in making it as well. Absolutely. Oh, and a quick correction for those of you pulling your hair out right now. Robert Osborne, not Richard Osborne. Robert Osborne (laughs) was the guy from TCM. Yeah, I, I am definitely with you on that. I think that, um, not only was it nice to, to, to have that revisited, but also something that I didn't even really think about at the time. You know, I, I grew up watching a lot of AMC and then eventually TCM. And all the movies that I would watch were movies. We would watch the classic movies, Bringing Up Baby, Arsenic and Old Lace, etc., etc. And we would, so I'm, I'm watching all these movies. And then of course we would turn around and we would watch the musicals. We would watch Anchors Away. We would watch any of the Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff. We would watch any kind, you know, bandwagon or what have you, right? Zigfield Follies. But one thing that I didn't actually realize or put together was that musicals were so big that the studios, and specifically here, obviously, MGM, uh, made everybody sing. Everybody. We're putting you in a musical. I don't know how to sing. Tough shit. <laughs> if Clark Gable can do it, God damn it, you can do it too. And guess what, guys? <laughs> Clark Gable couldn't do it. <laughs> and he didn't do it. He didn't even bother to try. Or, or maybe Jimmy Stewart couldn't do it. And he did try. That's right. But and, and so it's really, it is crazy. And so these are the movies, these are actually the musicals that I want to see. So I want to see Born to Dance, right? Um, I want to see Susie now because here are you're going to see Cary Grant sing. You're going to see uh, Gene Harlow sing. Of course, she was dubbed. Uh, you will see, you know, in Born to Dance, you'll see James Stewart sing, right? Eleanor Powell was a, was a decent singer. But um, e- either either way... You're seeing, for the, you know, you're seeing these people who you would never think could sing. Maybe they shouldn't sing, but they do. And so this was another facet to the musical that I never even realized. And so it's really kind of cool to see that aspect of it as well. Um, I, uh, I, I also was kind of interested with, um, Esther Williams. I I don't really know how many Esther Williams movies I've seen. It would it would be less than five, and I'm thinking three or less. And that's kind of another facet. I mean, the Aqua musical, really? That's in the second one. No, she's in the first one too. Oh, really? Yeah, because um, what's his face from Singing in the Rain introduces her. Gene Kelly. The no, make him laugh, make him laugh. Uh, Donald O'Connor introduces oh, her. Gotcha. Oh, gotcha. Because he's standing by the pool, remember? That's right. So, yeah, Esther Williams is much bigger in the second one, but they do cover her in the first one. And so this this whole idea of a swimming musical was just kind of like, 
This is something that's intrigued me again. I mean, it's kind of rekindled that passion. But I think the main question I want to ask you, Tim, about this whole thing is all of the, especially in the 20s and 30s. Now, you can see the back lot already at work by the late 30s. You can see the studio system in full swing in the 40s and 50s. But in the 20s, in the late 20s through the early to mid 30s to to the largest degree and then again in the like in the aqua musicals again with like the esther williams stuff how about those practical sets and those practical effects i mean none of that stuff none of that stuff would be done for real today nothing like the spiral staircase thing where everybody was going up and up and up and up and all and they're just and it's just completely twisting around and there's what there's got to be like 200 girls on this thing and like 75 guys like every other you know a portion of the tier as it spins and then they pull out and they go farther and farther back and then whoever i can't remember who's up at the top but then they pull away at the top and it's like a wedding cake almost and this woman is just up there i mean what i mean did did that stuff just not blow your mind i i just we're so cgi and special effects dependent today i think as a culture and especially as movie going audiences that i don't think people appreciate the just unimaginable amount of artistry and artisanship and craftsmanship that went into putting all those sets together oh yeah no a hundred percent that musical number in particular is one of really my favorite musical numbers ever. And that is from a film called The Great Zigfield, directed by uh, Robert Leonard, and it's with William Powell and Myrna Loy. Yeah, it's one of my favorite musical numbers. It's absolutely gorgeous. What Matt was saying, the camera starts at the bottom, like at the end of a stage, it starts zooming in towards... We think is just a simple kind of spiral staircase, but as it's going up the staircase, you notice that the staircase is moving and the camera is just sitting in the same place, you know, while the set is turning. And you see people, men dressed in top hats and in tuxedos, women in these gowns, women wearing tights and all this stuff. And it just gets more and more grandiose as you get to the top of this cake or cupcake or whatever. And at the top is this beautiful woman wearing this gorgeous dress. And she looks like a cupcake lady. And as you get to her, the camera starts pulling back as you're going away from the giant staircase. And it's just such, such a beautiful picture. That was the time that stuff like this was brand new. Mm -hmm. This was, these were things that people have never seen before, especially in films. You had people that lived in bum effing nowhere, you know, like in Oklahoma and Arkansas. They can't go to New York to go see a play. They can't get out to Chicago. They go to the picture show. And seeing something so not only elaborate, but ingenious must have just blown those people's minds. I mean, it blew my mind when I first saw it years ago. I mean, I never would have thought to have created a music because whenever you think of musicals, even in the 40s and 50s, you think of one wide shot and the camera follows 
the musical numbers. And especially with the Danny Kaye films with Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire tap dancing films, there's not a whole lot of front to back camera movement. It's very much lateral side to side. But when you see like a Busby Berkeley film or this number from the great Zigfield, the camera moves into the set. And that again goes back to what I was saying where, you know, some of the best musical numbers really establish themselves and set themselves apart from being just a stage musical. So yeah, I mean, it's wonderful. And going back to the documentary in general, I really did like all the different actors kind of narrating the film because when Jimmy, you saw Jimmy Stewart sing in the documentary, well, (laughs) Jimmy Stewart makes fun of himself. But then like Danny Kaye and Frank Sinatra, they make fun of other people. They even make fun of Clark Gable. And, you know, then you find out these little anecdotes also, which are absolutely charming that maybe you wouldn't really know about unless you read books about these people that might have come out in the early 80s or so when they were much older. Fans were were outraged when Clark Gable sang putting on the Ritz because fans felt like an actor of such machismo cinematic status like Clark Gable should have nothing to do with this musical nonsense. It's wonderful learning all these little tidbits and there's a lot of nuggets of Hollywood historical gold in here that just makes this film so damn entertaining and so well worth watching. And in fact, if nobody leaves this movie not appreciating MGM, I think that person has a problem. Their motto, in fact, was do it big, do it right, and give it class. The face of MGM during the 1950s was Gene Kelly. And probably the greatest movie musical ever made was American in Paris. So if MGM is not the epitome of do it big, do it right, and give it class, sure as hell Gene Kelly is, because that man... Watching him in the 1970s and then watching, seeing him again in That's Entertainment Part 2, which he also directed, newfound love for him. Newfound love. Such a talented guy. But Matt, I wanted to ask you, what was your introduction to Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire? And what makes a great classic movie musical film? What are the attributes to those films that make them truly great? My introduction to Gene Kelly that I can remember was Singing in the Rain as a kid. My mom had, my mom got me into musicals uh, at a very young age, about nine or so, nine, ten. And so Singing in the Rain was the first time that I can remember seeing Gene Kelly. And God, I couldn't tell you. I cannot tell you the first time that I saw Fred Astaire because they always had the different kinds of movies and stuff going when I was growing up. So, I mean, I I remember most the Fred Astaire... I'll accept the mailman from Santa Claus is Coming to Town. <laughs> no. Uh, it was it, it really wasn't that. I had... Um, I, I remember Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. So, that era... You know, 40, what, 42-ish to like 48. Um, so any of the movies in that era, I would, um, I wouldn't necessarily be able to name it, but that is the era. That's what I think of when I think of Fred Astaire, uh, uh, from my youth. 
in terms of what makes a great musical. Um, truly scale. I think that when we think of, I think one of the reasons why An American in Paris gets such a, a great love, that people have such a love affair with it, it's because of the scale. And I don't mean scope, I mean scale. If you think of the idea of what it's like to be a foreigner in another land, in a faraway place, that you've heard about your whole life, it's one of the few places in the world that you've heard of, that you have some kind of tie to through books, movies, TV, people talking about it, perhaps relations. It's one of those kind of mega-centric cities in the world like London or New York or L.A. or Hong Kong, um, you know, New Delhi, right? Um, and Cairo, Athens, Rome. You know, these are the kinds of places that people grow up hearing about their whole lives. And when you think of the scale of that, and then to put that to music, and to put it to dance, that's what makes it so so unbelievably powerful when you think about that kind of stuff. And it also works in things like, you know, with like Anchors Away. It works with... um Oh, what am I thinking of? Not high society, but um Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly, they are in New York's first... Oh, On the Town? On the Town, thank you. So it's the same kind of thing that you get with in On the Town. It's the scale. You have this amazing amount of scale. And again, that's what... And, and if you think about it, even when you go back to like... Um, those that, um, from 1929 and the 30s, and we, what we were talking about there with if we have it, if we had it right, you know, the great Zigfield is one with, is what, what we believe we're thinking of. That scale. It is, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so, um, okay, so from, think about from the great Zigfield in 1936, and just the absolute scale of that huge, huge performance. That's what makes it. You can zoom it down. Now you can, it's the musical on the whole. And you can still zoom it all the way down to a movie, like to, to Fred Astaire's performances and stuff. You can zoom it down to Gene Kelly. You can zoom it down to Judy Garland singing, have yourself a merry little Christmas, right? From Meet Me in St. Louis. You can, you can zoom down those performances and let that music grab you. But I think it's really and truly the scale of the story being told that makes the musical so powerful. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I'm just kind of rambling at this point, so I'll stop. <laughs> I first fell in love with Gene Kelly while watching Singing in the Rain. Typical. But for me, Fred Astaire, I watched a little uh, movie that was featured in this film. And it's actually the performance from that movie that really got me into him and that of course is royal wedding where he dances with the coat rack what i really love about that dance is it really shows you fred astaire's talent and i believe gene kelly was talking about this dance uh during that's entertainment where he said that fred astaire he uh he studied the ingenuity of precision 
and that all of his routines, they just look so easy because he just really worked at nailing everything and getting every step absolutely precise. And whenever he was coming up with new dance routines, he made sure that he never repeated himself. And so that's what got me into Fred Astaire's watching him dancing with a coat rack in Royal Wedding. But what makes a great classic movie musical for me is the nuance, the precision, and it must also be believable. I don't mean believable as in it has to be true to life. You know, the musical really has to follow the mechanics of real life. I'm not saying that at all. But there, you have to care about these people. And especially when they sing a love song, you have to care about them a lot enough to be into that love song. That is why we have great Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Carousel, for example, which is one of their most depressing musicals they ever wrote. West Side Story. It's such a beautiful, grandiose film, but man, that ending packs a punch. But then you have the smaller musicals like Gigi, which is very French. And there's just something so wonderfully charming about the movie and i would not ever call Gigi a grandiose big spectacle of film but what all these great movies have in common no matter if they're a west side story no matter if they're a Gigi or showboat or a toast of new orleans or another grandiose spectacle they all have that mgm sound that mgm sound is something that I'll talk a little bit more in the next film. But there's something that the composers did at the MGM scoring stage that couldn't be replicated anywhere else. The string sounded differently. The woodwind instruments had a nice calming sound that made things more frightening, more dramatic, or even more romantic. To me, that MGM sound was the full topping on all of these cakes. I'll just end my discussion there, my portion of the discussion there, unless, of course, you have any other questions or anything. No, I am excited to end here so that we can have everybody on pins and needles waiting for next week when we talk about 1976's That's Entertainment Part 2. Ooh, drama, excitement. Yeah, because we've got rhythm. Right. And clearly we don't do it big. We don't do it right. And we give nothing class. That is the <laughs> SLS cast motto. It's the SLS cast way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Well then I guess let's, uh, wait, what do you say? Is it time for the spiel? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting thing. Chomp don't want to help. Chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. Right, well, 
music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at RadioPropination.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we have, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nintuit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. And if you'd like to support the show, please head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Gene Kelly, I get to say this. Things danced on the screen do not look the way they do on the stage. On the stage, dancing is three-dimensional, but a motion picture is two-dimensional. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>